Welcome to the Gaming Street Podcast, your guide to the business of video games. I'm Stephen Wong. And I'm Olivia Da Silva. This week, we'll be talking about recent quarterly earnings reports and what they might mean for the companies involved. But first, our top story. Although a cloud of controversy hung over this year's BlizzCon, with pro-Hong Kong protesters lining up outside the Anaheim Convention Center, the show went without any major incidents reported. It was far from being the catastrophe some expected it to be, but it was also a relatively understated event. Blizzard Entertainment President J. Allen Brack took to the stage before the opening ceremony to apologize and take responsibility for the events surrounding the suspension of Grandmaster Hearthstone player Blitzchung by stating that Blizzard failed to live up to its own standards and purpose. Brack said, quote, We moved too quickly in our decision making, and then, to make matters worse, we were too slow to talk to all of you. He then vowed to do better by using the positive power of video games to bring people together. While there are some who weren't satisfied with the apology, many fans were happy with the new games announced, which include Diablo 4, the World of Warcraft Shadowlands expansion, and Overwatch 2. However, the announcements were somewhat deflated by leaks that spoiled the surprise weeks earlier. Olivia, what do you think of Brack's apology? Do you think fans can finally move forward now? Well, Stephen, I feel like it's kind of a tough situation no matter how you slice it. There was no way that BlizzCon could have started without there being some kind of acknowledgement for this whole situation. You know, it was fairly recent, it was a really big deal, and you couldn't just sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. Especially since protesters are right outside. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And, I mean, I can understand why people are still angry and still think, you know, that Blitzchung deserved better, but they can't just not do anything about the situation when something like this happens. The fact that they reduced the penalties against him to, you know, a six-month ban along with the casters involved, I think they've kind of found the middle ground between trying to kind of tone back how maybe aggressive they were with the initial situation, but also trying to kind of realize like, okay, we, we went a little too far with this, but there still needs to be some kind of repercussion for behaving that way, you know, because otherwise it kind of sets a precedent for future incidents. And frankly, I'm glad that they at least acknowledged it. They apologized and they kind of did the happy PR song and dance that needed to be done. It was kind of a sorry, not sorry moment on the <laughs> behalf of Activision Blizzard. Yeah, we failed to live up to our own standards, but you know what? We're going to make it up to you by doing what we've been doing all along. And here's something shiny to show you. (laughs) It would have worked out a lot better if the surprises were actually surprises. I mean, there were obviously fans there that were waiting for these announcements to become official, but knowing that they were going to happen took a lot of energy out of it. Absolutely. And I mean, the the struggle with this as well regarding the leaks is that there's not a whole lot that can be done about leaks. You have one stray employee who maybe gets approached by a media outlet or they go to them, who knows? And it's just kind of like, hey, by the way, Diablo 4, just keep your eyes out. The thing I think that people were maybe the most surprised or excited about is Overwatch 2. And not to say that Diablo 4 isn't exciting, but just the fact that people knew that this was coming. This wasn't news anymore. I think Overwatch 2 was the only one where people were really like, oh my god, this is actually happening. Because it had been more of a rumor versus like an outright leak, you know? Blizzard is taking a really different approach to creating this sequel. I think they realize that they don't want to cannibalize their Overwatch audience. There will be cross-play in multiplayer, meaning that Overwatch 1 players can play with Overwatch 2 players, and there are shared characters, and there are shared map. There's continuity between the two games. You don't necessarily have to give up playing Overwatch 1 to pick up Overwatch 2 to, to keep competing and to keep going. 
which is a huge risk on Blizzard's part. If you're not really that much into the story, if you're not jonesing for improved graphics, there's not a whole lot of incentive to, to pick up Overwatch 2 at this point. In my personal opinion, and this is coming from someone who has never played Overwatch in her life, so forgive me, but it's got such a following, it's got such a fan base, and it's got so many people that are so keen on it in every respect that even if the sequel doesn't offer quite as much in terms of, you know, things that aren't really available in the first one, I think there's still going to be an appetite for it. I think any diehard fan of any game, if a new version or a sequel or anything like that is released, people are going to get it just for the sake of, oh my God, there's more of this. It's more of whatever it is that I am absolutely crazy about. I think people will still jump on that bandwagon full force if it's something that they're really keen on. Part of me wonders whether Blizzard is trying to acquire the audience that it missed with Overwatch 1. The kind of player that isn't so much into competitive play. Because one of the main features of Overwatch 2 is, is cooperative play and campaign missions. Mm. So they're targeting an audience that prioritizes story and perhaps cooperative play. That'd be a way to get in a new audience and perhaps that will carry over to the crossover media so that it just grows Overwatch as a franchise instead of doing the normal next sequel, next sequel, next sequel process that a lot of publishers do. I think the worst case scenario for Overwatch 2 is that it's just mediocre. It's just middle of the road. I personally don't think it'll be an outright flop, but given the success of Overwatch, middle of the road is kind of a flop. So what did you think of BlizzCon as a whole? I mean, clearly it wasn't the huge home run that Blizzard needed it to be. I feel like overall it was like a cumulative weekend of them making the best of a bad situation and that being you know the bad pr from the blitzchung situation the all the game leaks you know like every, every big exclusive every big sequel every big game that they were trying to announce people already knew about they kind of had their cards laid out for them already and it, i felt like it was the kind of year where it's like okay Let's just stick to the script. We know it'll do fine. We'll just call this year a write-off. And to me, I feel like they just, I feel like they did that. So mm. was it overly exciting? No. But will next year be better? Maybe. Mm. Well, I argue that Blizzard really, really needed a home run. And they, they didn't get it. With November now underway, a lot of major gaming companies have released their financial reports for the end of the September quarter. Some companies are doing unsurprisingly well in light of successful product and title launches, while others showed evidence of struggling to stay afloat. In the case of Sony, the company itself had a reasonably positive quarter, as operating income reached $2.5 billion and marked a 16% increase from the same time period last year. However, the company saw losses in sales and operating revenue year-on-year, year, with Sony citing quote-unquote significant decreases in its electronics, productions, and solutions segment, along with the Game and Network Services Department. The Game and Network Services Division, in short, its PlayStation business, fell 17.3% in sales due to lower-than-expected software and PlayStation 4 hardware sales. So, Stephen, my point to you... PlayStation 4 is now entering the end of its life cycle. So do you think that this, you know, I guess flub in sales is just going to be kind of a growing pain that Sony has to deal with until the PlayStation 5 drops next year? We're definitely going to see a downward trend for the PlayStation 4 as we enter the last year. And it's happened every console cycle. But what makes the PlayStation 4 more pronounced this time around is that 
it's happening a lot faster than Sony anticipated. So it looks like a lot of people are ready to jump ship to the PlayStation 5 a lot sooner than expected. And this is even before specs have been announced for the PlayStation 5, officially at least. It's difficult to know what's going on here because in the past, people have picked up old consoles because they go on sale uh, before the holidays and you know they're, they're still good presents. But for some reason, that's not happening this time around. And I think that may be because Sony is a victim of its own success. Being the most popular video game console of, of the current generation, that probably means that they sold a console to everyone who was willing to buy one. Exactly. And that's the thing, right? You know, like the PlayStation 4 came out in 2013. You know, it's, it's six years old at this point. Anyone who's interested in buying a PlayStation has already bought one. And anybody who's thinking about jumping on that bandwagon is going to do so with the PlayStation 5. Like, it just makes a lot more sense, especially with the backwards compatibility that the PS5 is set to offer. So, you know, it, it just I guess I think you are right. Just like it is going to have to just be a waiting period of just kind of dealing with the overlap of people not really being interested in buying a PlayStation anymore, at least not until the next model drops. And, you know, taking it from the consumer point of view, with a year left and just a handful of games coming out for the PlayStation 4, before you see the PlayStation 5 launch in the holiday season 2020, there's no point in spending that extra $100, $400 on an old console that's that you know is going to be obsolete, even as like a gift. So <laughs> might as well save that 400 bucks and put it toward the PlayStation 5 and however much it'll cost. Exactly. Like presumably the PlayStation 5 isn't going to be too much more than 400 bucks. Like I would assume maybe around 500, but ultimately that's typically what a new console in any genre brand whatever consists of, right? So it's we'll, we'll see how that goes. But in the meantime, Sony has also announced that it's shutting down PlayStation View in January. And they've been trying to kind of get PlayStation View off the ground for a while now, but it seems they're finally cutting the cord. So I'm wondering if this is maybe to do with where they're at. I mean, for a variety of reasons, obviously, but also I'm wondering if part of that is because of the fact that, you know, with them being in this lull sales wise until the PlayStation 5 comes out, I'm wondering if this is a way for them to kind of cut costs and keep their finances in order for the time being. Yeah, I mean... To be fair, the PlayStation View has been unprofitable since its initial launch years ago, and it never really took off the ground. It acquired maybe 500,000 users in total across its entire lifetime, and they've raised the they've raised the they've raised the costs of it three times already, and it's it's still not bringing in the money that makes it sustainable. So it, it might as well shut it down, especially with all the, the streaming wars that are going on between Apple and the Disney Channel and whatever is happening right now. Um, whatever else is happening right now in, in the TV space, it's just not worth the investment for PlayStation to compete. I mean, if it couldn't compete when the... If it couldn't compete when the rivals were relatively low in numbers, it's not going to win when Disney officially jumps into the picture and, and becomes a huge thing that everyone knows it's going to be. Exactly. And it really is becoming a war of streaming subscription services at this point. And if you don't have something, you know, like in the case of Disney, where 
you know, they have this whole collection of movies and not exclusives necessarily, but, you know, there's there's a ton of Disney movies that I love that are nowhere to be found on Netflix or other services, right? So they have that kind of unique, I guess, break-in point where people are going to want it for that kind of content. And PlayStation View just didn't have that and it never really took off as you were saying then like you know it's it's better than it's better to just like let it go than to keep beating a dead horse right Mm -hmm. definitely and luckily play and luckily sony was able to make up for its shortfalls by by being profitable in its other areas i think that it, it made money in its camera divisions and other electronics so Sony is a really big company and has reach in a lot of different sectors, which was able to prop up this lull period for the PlayStation. So I think that I think that Sony is going to emerge very well from this period uh, over the next. It's going to be it's going to be kind of like they're going to experience headwinds for the next few months but i think once they officially announce the, the playstation 5 and show off some specs probably at this year's e3 they're going to make a huge impression and then things will start picking up for them again probably not in sales but in anticipation of the playstation 5 things will grow for them and and look more positive but to switch things over a little bit you know we were looking at nintendo as well and they released their six month results which showed a 14% increase year-on-year in net sales from the same time last year. Meanwhile, operating profits grew 53% year-on-year to hit over $860 million. Now, the company has been pretty busy the last little while, so it's not super surprising that they have seen these profits. You know, they attributed the growth to a handful of factors being the release of the Nintendo Switch Lite, the release of an upgraded version of the original Nintendo Switch console, but with an extended battery life, and major title releases being, you know, Super Mario Maker 2, Fire Emblem Three Houses, and Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, all of which have just come out in the last few months. Um, and further to that point, overall digital sales also increased 83% year on year due to what they say is steady growth in downloadable software sales and Nintendo Switch Online contributions. So that being said... Do you think that Nintendo is going to be able to maintain this momentum or are they just really capitalizing on kind of the vacant space left between Xbox and PlayStation being at the end of their life cycles? Well, this is why Nintendo launches its consoles kind of off cycle compared to Xbox and PlayStation. It it it, it doesn't necessarily compete in the same space. Um in, in some ways, Nintendo is kind of like the exception to many rules. There are a lot of exclusives, so there are games that can only be played on the Switch, as opposed to the Xbox and PlayStation 4, which are kind of extending their reach to, to cover more multi-platform and kind of bring down some of the, the walls of their walled garden just a little bit, just enough so that players will be satisfied and, and playing each other in Fortnite and and uh, Rocket League. Um, so while the place while Sony and Microsoft are expanding their audiences to other platforms, Nintendo has done very well becoming a pretty exclusive platform and the success it's it's backed by the sales success of the Switch. Now, I remember that you know, there was a little bit of a panic for first year, 
for first week sales of the Switch Lite in certain regions, but obviously that panic was uh, a little premature given that Nintendo has remained profitable, even though it changed its outlook so that it would be less profitable than it was previously because it's not launching a new console. But I think that you know Nintendo might have been underselling itself a little bit because we we're still waiting for the launch of like the new Pokemon games for Switch which I think will be the the big deal for 2019 which which will really boost Nintendo profits in in this year in the next quarter. Mhm. Yeah, that that is always kind of the nice thing about the Pokemon games. You can always kind of anticipate that there's going to be a market for that. There's going to be the fans who definitely want in on the next generation or the next, you know, even if it's like the remake, like with uh, like Heart Gold and things like that. You know, it's it's even if it's any kind of thing like that, if it's Pokemon, people will buy it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that is truly, I think, some of the glory of Nintendo being that, you know, even if even if the actual hardware that they're putting out is maybe not so popular like looking back at say like the wii u for example where people just really had a major distaste for it they always can fall back on these fan favorite ips that they have so close to their chest like legend of zelda like uh anything to do with super mario you know they know that they will sell and they always put so much heart and soul into these games in such a way that the fans can really latch onto it and so you know for some people you know like looking back at when the switch first dropped And at the time, they also announced, you know, Breath of the Wild. People were losing their minds for that. And people were ready to buy a Switch, like, even though they weren't so sure about it being a really teeny tiny uh, console, you know, they saw Breath of the Wild and immediately wanted to jump on for the sake of that game. And I think that as long as Nintendo continues to leverage those IPs that it has under its belt that has these fan followings, it's always going to be in some kind of safe place, even if maybe in comparison to Sony PlayStation or Microsoft Xbox, it's not performing quite as well at that moment. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the thing is also that Nintendo doesn't sell its consoles for a loss the way PlayStation and Xboxes do. The way that Sony works and the way that Microsoft works is that they sell their consoles at a loss and they hope to make up those profits in software sales, which is why they have all these subscription services and and stores and all this stuff. But Nintendo does not sell its consoles at a loss. The, the trade-off is that Switch consoles are not as powerful as the Xbox or the PlayStation 4, so you don't get those, those cutting-edge super high fidelity games like red dead redemption necessarily but you can play luigi's mansion which (laughs) which a lot of people are happy with so speaking on the note of notable ips we're going to shift over to electronic arts also referred to as ea Uh, The company also released its financial results recently and touted player growth among some of its major titles in those results. This included FIFA Ultimate Team and Madden Ultimate Team, which saw player growth of 22% and 19% year over year, respectively. Uh, Additionally, Apex Legends has now surpassed 70 million players to date, leading the company to push the title to mobile platforms, which EA says will be available in the 2021 fiscal year. And lastly, the Sim series has officially surpassed $5 billion in core sales across its multiple titles and nearly 20-year lifespan. So yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I think EA is very similar to Nintendo in the sense that they have these core franchises that they know sell well, that they know the fans gravitate towards, and they know that they can make a profit off of. So my question to you is, is there really a way for a company like EA to branch out or, you know, outside of these these franchises that they know perform so well? Or is it just better for them to stay in their lane? Well, I... To answer your question, I, I, I think we should just like look at the big picture because everyone knows that FIFA and Madden are going to do well. They always do well. And the surprising part is the 22% player growth, uh, the 22 and 19% player growth, which is, which is interesting because these the, the sports games have been around for so long that I personally didn't know that it could grow its audience by that number. I, d I personally didn't know that it could grow its audience that significantly with a single game. And it, I guess that is the power of the loot box, apparently. <laughs> um, the, because the, the ultimate team modes are kind of, are kind of loot box driven. So uh, I guess that's the, ma that's the magic behind behind the the most beautiful game soccer apparently <laughs> the same thing kind of goes for the sims that's not a surprise the sims madden fifa all huge successes not not a spectacular surprise and not even the fact that battlefield was left off the conversation sheet that that's not a huge surprise either because <laughs> of uh because battlefield 5 didn't do as well as expected what is a major takeaway is that apex legends is doing very well and I, I know that a lot of people were a little bit skeptical about its performance, given that its second season kind of launched with not as much enthusiasm as a lot may have hoped. But it's doing very well for the company, especially since the game launched about a year ago with barely any marketing, like zero marketing. It, it came as a complete surprise. You know, the thing that I find interesting with EA, you know, especially the fact that they're discussing or not even discussing, they've announced that it's going to get moved to mobile platforms as well. I find it really interesting that, you know, in my mind, you know, kind of as we were discussing, EA has these core franchises that it really, really stands by and does what it can to continue the popularity of. So, you know, as you were saying with the FIFA games, with the Madden games, we always know they do well. We can always count on them to come out pretty consistently for the latest console, whatever it is that's going to be coming out. But then with something like Apex, you know, I feel like EA has maybe a hesitation to branch out into new games, new IPs as a whole. But then, you know, when they see something like this where it has that popularity, they're like, cool, this is our way of expanding. We're just going to increase the number of platforms that can carry this game. And bada boom, bada bing, that's their strategy. And they can still maintain the strength of these core IPs while being able to broaden the availability of them. And I just I think it's a neat strategy that they have in terms of getting their games out there and continuing to grow the the popularity and the audiences while still maintaining the core, I guess, quality of what they know sells and what they know works. The thing about Apex Legends is that it's based off of the Titanfall franchise. It's made by the same people who made Titanfall, which is also a sci-fi competitive shooter, just not a battle royale the way Apex Legends is. So... There's already interest in the fan base from Titanfall saying, like, 
oh, so this is going to be the Battle Royale version of Titanfall. I got to check this out. It's free to play. And the what also sets Apex Legends apart is that it it's kind of like a cooperative competitive game where most other Battle Royale games like Fortnite are very singular focused. It's, it's like you have to be the last person on the hill, the last one standing. This one, you're the last team standing. You get into these teams of three, you fight it out, and the, the, the ones that coordinate with each other best and play with each other best will be the victor. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think that's really appealing, to be quite honest. Like, there's something nice about being able to win as a team as opposed to like, oh, crap, my, my teammate died. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's just me carrying us now, I guess. And, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to have that kind of, as you were saying, like cooperative setup. And I think that does really appeal to a wide audience. It'll be interesting to see how Apex Legends translates into the mobile platform because we've seen PUBG go to mobile. We've seen Fortnite go to mobile. Both are tremendous successes. I'm not 100% convinced that Apex Legends can also make the jump to mobile, but I am dying to find out. <laughs> well, 2021 fiscal year, keep your eyes peeled. Um, but on the note of the mobile gaming scene, some companies were also breaking revenue records over the last quarter, one of which was Zynga. Uh, known for games such as Merge Dragons and Empires and Puzzles, the company saw record quarterly revenues of $345 million, marking a 48% year-over-year increase, and record bookings of $395 million, a 59% year-over-year growth. The major growth in revenue was pushed ahead by the two aforementioned games, with Merge Dragons in particular seeing a whopping 817% growth in revenue, year-over-year, year, and bookings up 281%. As such, Zynga has raised its full-year guidance by $42 million to $1.28 billion, along with its booking guidance by $46 million to $1.55 billion. This is insane to me. Have you played either of these games? No, but I know, I know a number of Zynga games. I played Words with Friends for a little while, um, and... I, I think it's very interesting that they're kind of pulling away from their some of their core long-time legacy franchises like Words with Friends. And so it's really interesting that Zynga is able to kind of grow past its legacy franchises with its acquisition of Small Giant Games last year and game, making games like making games like Empires and Puzzles such a huge success. And I think this is going to be an ongoing strategy for Zynga. I think it and a number of other companies are going to be looking to make major acquisitions to boost its profits because a lot of these legacy franchises have probably hit their peak and they're, they're kind of like leveling out as far as revenues go. So you need, you need fresh IPs. You need things that'll, that'll keep pushing the market forward. Perfect timing for you to be mentioning, you know, a dying franchise. On the flip side of a mobile company's performance, Rovio Entertainment profits took a nasty spill over the quarter as they fell 48.1% to just over $6 million. Ouch. Yeah. Um, they're known for developing the popular Angry Birds game, and the company cited, quote-unquote, increased user acquisition to drive growth of new games for its drop in profits, meaning they were just looking to get more users and I think maybe spent more money than they were actually bringing in, which is unfortunate because Angry Birds was great. <laughs> 
Yeah, and and we've talked about this, the rising costs of user acquisitions, and it's it's getting to the point where it, it's going to be extremely difficult for mobile game publishers to remain solvent because there's so much churn, there's so much drop off after players pick up a game and try it for a little while, and then it's I think it, there's like a like almost 90% of players drop off for most games within the first three months. And so you, you have to keep, you just have to keep acquiring. You have to keep getting, putting your game out there to get more, more new players to join, to make up for the players that you lost. And that costs so much money. And that's what Rovio is experiencing. Uh, what makes Rovio, um, a study case is that it, it tried to expand its brand with the, the Angry Birds movie and other cross media to make itself more popular, more well known, and to some extent that was a success for the first movie. But I heard that the second movie didn't do as well. So you know, those are the those are the ways. That's the way that the entertainment business goes. You sometimes you have your hits, sometimes you have your flops. And for a company like Rovio, that was a very significant investment to kind of branch out into the movie business. And it paid out the first time, but it didn't pay out so much the second time. And I don't know necessarily if it accomplished what they wanted, which is pretty much to keep the Angry Birds franchise going by bringing people to their game, which may be... Maybe it, it leads to the growth of Angry Birds, but even even so, even if it, if Angry Birds all by itself stayed an extremely profitable franchise, you it's going to peak at some point. The way Zynga's legacy brands have probably peaked, and you have to drive users to your other games. Rovio does make other games besides Angry Birds. Why haven't you heard of them? Because they're not nearly as popular as Angry Birds. So yeah, that's that's the that's the that's the big problem. If you have a huge success, the people are only going to know you by that one success. And if you need you need more hits to attract a wider audience and that's probably not happening. 48% Revenue loss in in a single quarter is a huge hit, and it's obviously something is not clicking. Absolutely. And I mean, so the thing is that's crazy about this is that their profits fell such a significant amount, but their actual game revenue was up 5.2% year on year to $83 million, which goes to show that Rovio's games are still doing fine. They're, they're still they're still making money. They're still bringing in people, I suppose. But, you know, the company also admitted that brand licensing revenue was below expectations, you know, after the second Angry Birds movie came out and did not do as well as they had anticipated. And, you know, to similar as to what you were just saying, you know, I think it's commendable of them to try and expand outside of like, okay, we have this mobile game. It's clearly very popular because we're getting X number of users each month and so on and so forth. Let's see if we can grow this further into other forms of media. And for a period of time, I remember, you know, there was Angry Birds merchandise everywhere. It was t-shirts. It was plushies. It was all everything. And I, I'm not even sure if that was before the first Angry Birds movie came out. I feel like this was actually a thing before they got into movies. And 
it seemed to be doing pretty well. Like they were popular. They were cute little plushies. Like it's very family friendly sort of content across the board. And it seemed like it was on the right track. But I think, you know, I think it might have just run its course. I think, you know, they they expanded to the one movie. They had the game still going. But ultimately, I remember playing Angry Birds when I was, I think, in high school on my iPod Touch. And like that was that was a while ago. So, you know, the game has been around for a while now. And I think they they really have to try and transition into these new titles and try to keep things afloat that way. And now at this point, I think they're realizing like, okay. Angry Birds is done. We've done the Angry Birds thing. We've done the movies. We've done the merchandise. Like, I I think we got to just rely on the game to keep doing what it's doing, but otherwise change our focus elsewhere. Like, bring in new IPs, bring in something fresh that can bring in that same kind of audience. And, you know, I I think that's the only route that they have available to them at this point. I think that Rovio still has a number of options before it. The first of which that comes to mind is that it can triple down on a- Angry Birds and just Angry Bird everything. Oh my God. <laughs> and make, make more Angry Birds games, make the Angry Birds Battle Royale, make the Angry Birds shooter. Oh my God. And, and just go all in on Angry Birds and, and hopefully try to leverage Angry Birds to grow some of its other IPs. And I'm surprised, I'm, I'm truly shocked that it, it hasn't done that already. Imagine a game where one player is the bad piggies and the others are the angry birds and the one player builds like these massive contraptions to try to break through into the angry bird stronghold while the angry bird is launching birds at the other <laughs> at the other. I'd play that. I would totally play that and and you know, neglect my family. <laughs> I feel like you should pitch this to Rovio to be honest. <laughs> yeah, hot Rovio, if you are listening to me. Hit me up, you know where to find me. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think the most important thing for Rovio at this point is to not release another Angry Birds movie. Anything else they do at that point is up to them. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this week's edition of the Gaming Street Podcast. Our show is a production of Gaming Street and Enthusiast Gaming. It was written by Stephen Wong and myself, Olivia De Silva, and edited by Conrad Zimmerman. Music was composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. We'll be taking a brief hiatus from the podcast, but we'll be returning soon from our new office in downtown Toronto. For more news and analysis on the games industry, visit GamingStreet.com. For Gaming Street, I'm Stephen Wong, and we'll talk to you next time.